Remember that famous Top Gear episode where they re tarmac a road in 24 hours? Boy, could we have done with them last weekend. Welcome to Bike Live. Let's go! This is episode 75 of Bike Live, and despite the seemingly upbeat and happy tone, welcome to a depressing edition of the show. Um, as we look <laughs> back on last weekend's British Grand Prix, which if you've been reading our newspapers, you'll remember no racing happened. Um, we're going to discuss the cancellation of the British Grand Prix and all of the stories uh, that have come from it and all the uh, factors and basic mistakes that have been made that brought us to this very position where we're discussing a cancelled Grand Prix um, last Sunday. Uh, we saw riders end up in hospital, we saw riders ending up in meetings, we saw fans shivering in grandstands waiting for action that never ultimately came. It was a sorry weekend for MotoGP, a sorry weekend for the British Grand Prix, and a sorry weekend for Silverstone. Uh, we'll get into all of that um, over the course of the next hour and a half or so um, here on Bike Live. Uh, we'll also discuss the stories that did come from last weekend. Um, on track, there was actually some running. Obviously, everything bar the racing did still take place, and there was still plenty to discuss from last weekend, which we'll get into uh, on this week's show. There were also a number of significant rider announcements ahead of next year in both the MotoGP and World Superbike Championships, which we'll bring you as well on this week's show. And we'll look at this weekend, which won't take very long because there ain't anything happening at all um, this weekend. But hey, we're about to de devote the entirety of this show to a race weekend where no racing happened either. Um, so don't worry about it. Joining me this weekend, um, or this week as ever, to uh, discuss the hilarity, the controversy, the chaos and the sadness of what we got last weekend at Silverstone is Andre Harrison. Welcome, Dre. Hi, guys. Um... This might be our greatest challenge yet, yeah. everybody. We have to somehow fill out what's normally a two-hour-long show with absolutely zero actual racing to get through. Um, <laughs> uh, like, like we don't get paid very much to do this, <laughs> um, so no. this is a, this is a real labor of love. And like, I don't envy Lewis for the first time. I actually don't envy him actually being at a Grand Prix media center for this race. Well, I say race. There wasn't yeah. one. So, um, so how was it in the media center there, twiddling your thumbs for four hours? Do you know what? We're, we're very shortly going to plug uh, this week's episode of Motorsport 101, uh, which we'll mm. be discussing the Belgian Grand Prix. It got to the stage where, um, at, what, 10 past two, whatever time it was that the Formula 1 started, because we were all mm. sat there watching um, a rainy racetrack and nothing happening, a lot of the media center at Silverstone was sat watching the Formula One on various tablets and phones and laptops. So, yeah, not, so right? one of the great ironies of MotoGP's schedule, they changed their schedule around... No, I'm not talking about the schedule change they made on Saturday night, um, but their schedule was essentially to try and stay away from the Formula One. They ran MotoGP second originally, and then it became first in the program to dodge the Formula One. And in the end, most of the people that were even at Silverstone were still watching the Formula One. Um, yeah, and there were, yeah, there were yeah. audible gasps in the media center. Uh, fun story: my stream on my phone with SkyGo was about thirty seconds behind a lot of other people. So I heard audible gasps from around the media center while the red lights were going out, and immediately thought, "Something's going to happen here at the source on this first lap." Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, and lo and behold, Fernando Alonso took flight um, shortly afterwards. Again, um, <laughs> again, again, indeed. Um, but uh, but yeah, it was a uh, it was a tricky weekend. Um, it was it was one of those where. <laughs> Don't feel too sorry for me, listeners, in that 
you know, I was there as media. I was there in a very privileged position to be able to cover what went on. And obviously, even if the race got cancelled, I was still there to cover what went on. Um, and a lot of people asked me when uh, I came back home on, on Monday, oh, so you're going to get your money back? And I was like, well, I've got to be honest, I didn't pay to get in um, because I was there as media. I, the people I feel ultimately sorry for, um, you know, I don't expect anyone to feel sorry for me, really. Um, but I feel hugely sorry for the fans that paid good money to go and watch a motor race on, on Sunday mm-hmm. and sat in grandstands. I was sat in a slightly warmer media centre than uh, than the conditions outside. Um, but yeah, the people who were sat shivering in tents and in grandstands, um, I feel hugely sorry for, and they're likely to uh, receive their money back um, as a result of what we saw last Sunday, but they're not going to receive their time and their effort back, which, is, uh, which obviously is a great shame. We'll get into all of that, all of the... Uh, madness from last weekend's british grand prix in a moment but first the places you can find us starting on facebook facebook.com forward slash motorsport 101 uh, if you want to follow us on twitter at motorsport underscore 101 is the place to go um, our youtube channel is youtube.com forward slash motorsport 101 our website is motorsport 101.com uh, and if you like us so much that you want to back us financially on earning yourself early access to both of our weekly shows um it is patreon.com forward slash motorsport 101 five dollar backing earns you early access to both our weekly shows both bike live and motorsport 101 ten dollar backing earns you access to our discord server and the opportunity and the ability to listen to these podcasts live as they are recorded um and as we sit here on wednesday august 29th um the latest episode of motorsport 101 uh, he says this without checking the numbers 157 is this or 158 dre help me out 157 157 um, of Motorsport 1. I usually, to this, this gives you an idea of to what kind of people we are. I tend to remember what number the Motorsport 101 podcast is up to based on aligning it to a darts checkout, uh, which, enab- hey. which enables me to remember what number we're up to. Uh, but episode 157, um, I have to say, although he was disappointed not to see a MotoGP race on Sunday, Dre was very, very happy with the Formula 1 race that we got. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, no, um, yeah, professional dry stay professional. Yes. Um, <laughs> um, yes, it was a nice, it was nice to have F1 and uh, basically have uh, Sebastian Vettel dunk on Lewis Hamilton's Mercedes. Um, not complaining in the slightest. Um, uh, the race, uh, it peaked about 25 seconds in. Um, let's be honest. Um, it, it was, uh, it was a. Uh, interesting belgian grand prix but not a very exciting belgian grand prix but we all do break it down here on episode 157 and well the biggest story of the week the uh the rise and fall and then rise again of force india um as, as, amazingly they were able to replace um esteban ocon and carl and um and sergio perez with um esteban ocon and sergio perez it's amazing how that turned out yeah but uh but uh all the stories regarding Racing Point, the Belgian Grand Prix in general, that epic four-wide shot going into Lacoum um, on the opening lap, and Fernando Alonso basically being turned into a trebuchet thanks to Nico Hülkenberg. Um, <laughs> all of that, and as well as the uh, Gateway Bomberito 500 in St. St. Louis in IndyCar as Will Powell would take his fourth oval victory in his last 11 overs. Which, which, uh, which this podcast or this uh, collection of podcasts was sort of directly involved in. <laughs> Yes, we sponsored a lap. We sponsored lap 101. 100, lap 101 of 248 was brought to you by the Motorsport 101 podcast. We've peaked, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. We have absolutely peaked. Um, although I have to also put my hands up and admit it was only the second coolest sponsorship of the race. Shout out to that guy who sponsored lap 69. Mm-hmm. Nice. Uh, 
Well played, that gentleman. Um, uh, very, very, very well done indeed. If that is not a better way to spend a hundred bucks, I don't know what is. Um, so yeah, the great oval fight between uh, you know Will Power, Alex Rossi, and Scott Dixon. Uh, as Rossi slowly beginning to reel in Dixon with just two rounds to go, just 26 points separating those two now at the front of the championship with just two races left, the uh, Grand Prix of Portland this weekend as well, the first time IndyCar's going there in over a decade. So all of that breaking down, a heaped new section and all the talk from Belgium as well. Episode 157 of Motorsport 101, that's Racing Point actually, available now. Sadly, not on a t-shirt. No, not yet. Anyway, uh, we haven't got that to that level of shapelessness just yet. Um, but yeah, let's uh, <laughs> let's get into the British Grand Prix um, of 2018, a race that will go down in history for all the wrong reasons. Um, the bare fact to these, it was the first Grand Prix, uh, first MotoGP race to be cancelled since Sepang 2011, which of course was cancelled in very tragic circumstances. Um, it was the first Grand Prix race day to be cancelled entirely, with no racing taking place in any class since the 1980 Austrian Grand Prix, which was cancelled due to snow, believe it or not, um, <laughs> back in the uh, early 1980s. Um, that's the kind of uh, history that was, uh, the unfortunate history that was being made um, last weekend. Uh, now, the problems, if you want to trace this back to its very root, the problems have kind of been building over the last four years, um, or certainly, arguably, even longer than that. But speaking from personal experience, the last four years where I've been at the British Grand Prix in immediate capacity with the chequered flag, um, whenever I and the collection of journalists that are there have ever gone to a rider debrief, the first thing they speak about and the thing they speak about with the most vociferousness is always how bumpy the circuit is. Um, now, what resulted from that is that MotoGP essentially wanted the circuit relaying um, for this year to try and remove some of the bumps. Um, the circuit was relayed. Um, whether they actually did a job of removing the bumps is, uh, is anyone's uh, guess. Um, we'll probably uh, give you a full answer to that shortly. Um, but the problems we got on the Sunday, or really the problems that started on the Saturday, were directly as a result of the track surface um, that was relayed. And Dre, it was Saturday where the problems really started um, with this. I mean, it, it's not unheard of for a British Grand Prix to be rain affected. It's you know this is now the third, or it would have been the third Grand Prix in nine years on the Sunday to be taken place in wet conditions had the race happened at all. Um, but what we got on Saturday was very extreme. It was a monsoonical downpour up at Stowe Corner um, during FP4. And one of the most terrifying scenarios, one of the ter- most terrifying scenes and sights that any of us have probably ever seen in Grand Prix Racing in the time we've been watching it. Yeah, this was a horrible, horrible accident for a Tito Rabat um, on, on this one. Um Broke his leg basically in three different places um, and had an artery cut as well. Luckily, it wasn't one of the more critical ones, which could have killed him in minutes if he wasn't treated on the scene. But still, a horror. Arguably, the injury of the season so far was, on a, that was a really, really awful one. Rabat's had a couple of bad ones this year already. I mean, I remember the one he had in Catalonia testing that the final corner of his bike exploded mm. um, as it hit the gravel trap. So, Rabat's had a, a rough time of it this season on numerous occasions. And uh, this was no exception. This was a ho- horrible, horrible accident um, down towards Stoke Corner. Just flung off there and uh, shattered his leg, basically. And um, it only got worse from there, sadly, um, in terms of just sheer, like, you had to open your eyes and go, wow, this is, is this actually happening right now? Um, because 
Alex Rins ju- had to literally jump off his bike at, a, at over a hundred miles an hour. Um, yeah, essentially, he arrived up at the top of Stoke Corner where he was about to reach the braking zone, and the circuit was like a lake. And and he basically aquaplaned off, which is bad enough when you're in a open wheeled or closed cockpit uh, racing car. You're, you've got no control, and you essentially head to the scene in an accident. When you're on a motorbike, it's even worse. It is one of the, well, if not the, scariest scenario in a motorcycle race because it is essentially like you've got a stuck throttle. It's you know you've got no control of stopping the bike. You have to bail um, yeah. instantly. And it's, before we talk a bit more about Rabatre, I think no, very few people come out of this race weekend with any kind of credit, and we can struggle to call anyone from last weekend a hero. It's largely villains, um, mm. but. What Alex Rins did, not so much jumping off the bike, which in itself is kind of heroic, but what he did after he had jumped off the bike, there's only one word for it, and that is heroic, what Alex Rins did. No, it absolutely is. I completely agree. Um, he After he jumped off the bike, um, instead of running to the marshals for medical attention or to be taken off the circuit, he got back on um, and like towards the edge of the gravel trap, warning riders to slow yeah, down in the distance. them to slow down. They're like, please slow down, because it, as you said, it was basically a lake on the run-up towards uh, Stowe Corner, and he might have saved a life doing that. And I, I don't exaggerate oh. that comment in, in by any in any way, shape, or form. It it was such an incredibly important. And let's not forget, Rins has put his own life in danger here to warn other riders to slow down. Like he's put himself in a very dangerous position in order to warn the guys up ahead. Listen, slow down. You're not going to make this corner. Because um, you're heading towards Stowe at well, even in wet conditions, about 190 miles an hour. Um, nothing short of heroic um it's a very very rare thing um like I, I often refer to bikers more as gladiators than i do heroes but that that was a incredibly selfless act and it may have saved a life out there given how treacherous those conditions were um and the fact that yeah this the sport really didn't do enough on the saturday to protect the riders given how dangerous the conditions got um, at one point, um, Alex Rins had an incredibly important role in that, and uh, yeah, it's uh, it, it was incredibly important, and yeah, nothing short of heroic, um, an incredibly noble thing to do in mm. the circumstances. Yeah, and, and as as Dre mentioned, Tito Rabat, um, he in many ways Tito Rabat's life was saved by by what Alex Rins did. I mean, I don't know if Rabat was in any position anyway to jump out of the way of the bike because we we don't on the, obviously on the TV pictures we didn't see the actual impact between bike and Rabat, but we saw them both fly into shot. Um, mm. Obviously, moments after the collision had happened, when Morbidelli aquaplaned off at, at Stowe, uh, six riders all went off at the same time at that corner, uh, at the end of FP4. Um, Cal Crutchlow spoke after qualifying on Saturday. He said that when he approached that corner at the end of it, the track surface was just like a mirror. Um, you know, wow. there, was just, there was just that, that, that reflection of it with just so much water. Um, and we'll we'll talk about the the ins and outs of why that was the case um, in a little bit. But yeah, Tito Rabat, who remarkably has been seen uh, in Coventry Hospital uh, since then. Within 24 hours, he was seen on his feet uh, in hospital, obviously with assistance from from doctors and and with a, a friend to sort of help him um, keep himself upright. Um, but just the the bravery, the mental and physical strength. Um, and your guts that he's showing to, to get through this is incredible. Um, he broke his tibia, fibula, and his femur. 
um, which which is astonishing. So it's basically from basically his entire leg from sort of ankle up to the top of his thigh was all broken. Um, and 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 it, you know it, extraordinary. And you but there was there was talk on social media that you know when you you were watching the world feed and the commentators weren't talking, you could hear him trackside screaming in agony um, oh. with, with the pain he was in. And it's not putting too fun. We're not being sensationalist when we say it that. As Dre mentioned, there was talk that you know he could, there could have been damage to an artery, which would have you know killed him through sheer blood loss, and um, had he not been treated immediately. But there's not he's not putting too fine a point on it to say that had that bike of Morbidelli's hit him in the head and not in his leg, it would have killed him. End of story. No, no, no question. End of no story. Question. That would have been it. Um, and but we, we'll talk about what happened on Sunday, Dre, shortly. But. In, in many respects, and you know, I don't take this as any sort of jab at Tito or Batman when I say this, but it's in many ways a good job that it happened because had that not happened, there's every chance that on the Sunday the race would have gone ahead as normal with complete blissful ignorance as to what the riders were going to find on lap one. And when they'd have gone down Hangar Straight on lap one, it would have been a casino and all of the riders would have just gone straight on. Yeah, that's probably what it would have been like. Uh, now, in terms of safety, I've never been the greatest fan, shall we say, of, you know, reactionary safety measures. Like, I'd, I'd rather we have a more progressive sport in the sense of we have these conversations, you know, continually, rather than only in, in the shock value when something happens, like we have with Justin Wilson in IndyCar for example, where react where moves take place after critical events. Mm. But yeah, you're right. In a vacuum, and obviously this is this is in no way um, you know, being disrespectful towards Tito, um, and obviously the awful injury he suffered. Um, it was necessary. It was necessary because that was essentially the warning shot to the rest of the field about what could happen if they raced on Sunday morning. Um nobody had any idea how this track was going to react to such heavy rainfall. And we soon got the answer. Everybody went off at Stowe. Everybody. Um, and yeah, it was a necessary evil. It was reactionary, but it needed to happen because, oh man, that could have been a total unmitigated disaster if we had raced on Sunday morning, not knowing what could have happened um, at Stowe Corner if everybody's barreling into it at 200 miles an hour. Um Thank God we didn't actually race on Sunday before, I mean, without that accident for Rabat in FP4 because as a result of that, we kind of saw what was going on there and we knew that, you know, the track was just inherently dangerous in its current conditions. Mm, it was. And uh, we went to uh, a number of rider debriefs post-qualifying uh, on the Saturday. Um, the first of them was Carl Crutchlow's, um, who doesn't mince his words, as I think regular listeners to this show and regular Never. followers of motorcycle racing will know. Um, he pretty much says it as it is. I mean, I wasn't at his debut for the Friday um, by virtue of the fact that um, myself and uh, and Alice Sipple of the Checker Flag were both, both at the event, so we were able to, when two debriefs clashed, split which went ones we went to. Um, so at the same time, on Friday, Maverick was speaking, uh, so I went to that, she went to Cal, and apparently he was very critical of the circuits resurfacing already on the Friday, based on the fact that in dry conditions it was no better anyway. Um, on the mm. Saturday, he immediately said, I think the first thing he said on the Saturday when the first question was asked to him in his debrief was, um, you yeah, know, we might as well, if it's like this tomorrow, we're not going to have a bank holiday because we might as well just come back on the Monday. 
Um, he essentially like, straight. He essentially said straight away, if we have these conditions, the same as FP4 on Sunday, we're not. We cannot race. And um, myself and Alice sort of turned to each other then, and we sort of raised our eyebrows in the sort of wow, look at that. And, but immediately in my head, I was thinking, well, this is this may be Cal just sort of, you know, being quite bold in what he says, and you know going for a bit of a soundbite. It was very quickly obvious when we then spoke to Marquez and uh, Lorenzo and Dobby then spoke in the post-quality press, post press conference along with Zarco. Uh, Rossi said the same. They said, if it's like this tomorrow, we cannot race. Um, which immediately led to us to sort of look at what was going on with the track surface uh, and you know why we were essentially in a scenario where in a rain-affected scenario, the circuit is completely unusable. Um, now, in the press conference on the Saturday, as the questions were being asked by Steve Day of Dorna, um, the news then broke that the race schedule for the Sunday was being moved around because the forecast for the Sunday had long since been for rain all day uh, on the Sunday from around 11 o'clock onwards. Um, mm-hmm. So they moved the MotoGP race to the start of the day, to 11.30, uh, which was when the Moto3 race was originally going to start, and they swapped the Moto3 race to 1 o'clock. Unfortunately, the heavy rain arrived at about... 10 o'clock in the morning, um, which immediately created a problem. And I remember the, the exact moment when I thought we'd got a problem here. It was on the sighting lap to go to the grid, and Alvaro Bautista went straight off at Vale Corner on his sighting lap. Um, yeah. And I, and I immediately thought to myself, Dre, if Tito Abat's going off at 50 miles an hour, we've got a problem. This ain't, this, this ain't a race that's going to go ahead anytime soon. Yeah, that that was that was the kicker. We all just sort of knew that. Well, the, the impression I got from following you, from following guys like uh, David Emmett, Simon Patterson, who were all at the track, uh, Matt Oxley, you know, who by the way put in a monumental shift when it came to the journalism he was putting out regarding this uh, this race weekend. Uh, Matt Oxley doing the Lord's work. Honestbarmagazine.com. Yeah, um, I'm actually got one of his very pieces in front of me to refer to in a moment. But yeah, it's it's a sensational yeah. piece of journalism. Yeah, yeah, he, he really did a fantastic bit of work finding out the ins and outs of just how this weekend played out and how we got to that point. But uh, yeah, it was obvious we weren't getting a race anytime soon. And, you know, one cancellation became another, you know, one delay became another. Like, it was kind of obvious, again, if you'd seen the weather forecast, yeah, it was going, this, this rain was not going to ease up. Um, I had a good friend of mine, Kevin Walsh, who follows me on Twitter. Hi, Kevin, are you listening? Um, he was down there for the race weekend and he was tweeting me constantly saying, mate, we're not getting a race this weekend. And I didn't believe him at first. And by the time you got to 3, 4 p.m. in the afternoon, it was uh, becoming quite obvious that, uh, no, we really weren't getting a race this afternoon. We just didn't quite get to that point if it wasn't for a few hours first. I mean, by by 11.20 um, in the morning, they were saying, you know, you know, the revised start time of 11.30 was delayed due to poor track conditions. Uh, after, after the sighting laps, they were coming off the grid, um, and they were going to book a meeting an hour later at half twelve. Because MotoGP.com very openly put the timeline of shit, um, or should I say, the timeline of how the race got cancelled um, on their website, and uh, whew, it's not pretty. It is not pretty at all. No, it isn't. More um, just as a quick um, aside. Um, to um to what we're going to talk about um i just want to quickly shout out now we used to record these podcasts absolutely live and stream them live um 
we don't do that at the moment, but I'm going to mention something that's literally just come through to me on Twitter um, from my good friend Don Mottram, um, who, again, may well be listening to this. Um, he does a radio show for Coventry Hospital Radio. Mm. And he's literally just tweeted me, uh, or sent me a direct message two minutes ago, Tito has gone and hobbled off the cheek of these fit athletes. Um, because <laughs> he, managed, he managed to track him down uh, yesterday in, in Coventry Hospital. Um, which wow. is brilliant. So yeah, there's a little insight to you that no one else has heard. Um, that uh, Tito about is uh, currently hobbling away through Coventry. They... Lewis is out here getting scoops yeah, on this cancelled uh, show. This shout, out, shout out to Dom for that. Not only for uh, the hospitality well, on Sunday probably. night, but also for that little scoop uh, right here on Bike Live. Um, so, uh, so yeah, back to what we got on Sunday. So the, uh, the race was rescheduled for 11.30 Sunday morning. Uh, with the Moto 3 to run at 1pm and the Moto 2, which was always going to run at 2.30 in the afternoon. I immediately tweeted Race Direction or tweeted the Moto GP official account with the sort of the uh, reply of ambitious guys, very ambitious. Um, I remember that. Yeah. Uh, and as I mentioned, uh, Bautista f- sort of sails off on the sighting lap and the riders are immediately getting off their bikes on the grid, sort of giving the old, um, you know, crossing your hands over to say, this ain't any good guys, there's no point racing here at the moment. Um, and as Dre mentioned, the succession of delays followed. We initially had a delay, um, well, excuse a start delay. Then there was a, a track inspection scheduled for around one o'clock. Um, given that the safety car nearly dropped it, and you can imagine how that inspection went. Um, I'm going to assume badly. Badly, yeah. <laughs> the uh, the safety car nearly dropped it coming onto the uh, the uh, straight approaching Brooklyn's, the Wellington straight. Um, mm. Now, at 1.30, the race was t- uh, delayed again, and we got the notification to say that start was delayed until further notice, um, mm-hmm. to which all of us replied, well, what's further notice? Um, now, at this point, we had um, we had trucks out on track trying to clear water away. That wasn't really yielding anything at all because of the problems with the track, which we're going to bring up to you in a moment. Um, we then saw the riders all going into a meeting with Erta at around four o'clock, um, mm-hmm. at which point the decision was made amongst the riders and Erta that racing was not going to proceed uh, for the rest of the day. Um, this was pretty much within half an hour of an announcement from MotoGP that they were going to try and inspect the track at 4.30 with the view to a race start at 4.50 uh, and to complete all three races from all three classes before 7.30pm, which was essentially when the the daylight was likely to fade. Um, yeah. Now, so many issues for us to get into here, Dre. One of them oh. being the power of the riders. Uh, and one of the brilliant pieces that Matt Oxley wrote was... Um, a piece entitled MotoGP is the tail wagging the dog, um, mm. which was his uh, is MotoGP's tail wagging the dog was the title of the piece. Uh, and he asked the question, should the riders have raced on Sunday? Do they have too much say in their own safety? Uh, what's your view on that? Um, short answer, no. Um, long answer, hell no. Um, no, like... Given what we problem. saw with Tito Rabat, surely they were well within their rights to make that call. Listen, I don't care how much money you're paid. I don't care what sponsors you have to fulfill or what political decisions are going on in the back. If a motorcycle racer does not want to get on his 260 horsepower motorcycle and ride it at 200 miles an hour around a really fast track in horrific conditions, I say he has every right not to race. Um, I don't care what they tell me. 
Like, if you guys want to endorse these guys as gladiators, they have every right not to compete. Yeah, because what, like, what, what's the tweet that we've both seen so many times, and we've probably both given the same sort of angry reaction when we've seen it, where it's the sort of, oh, yo, these guys are paid so well, these guys are the bravest guys in the world, they should just shut up and get out there and race. Did, did Josh Brooks hack their accounts? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Um, but uh, no, yeah, I, I, I saw many a tweet regarding, I saw many bullshit Isle of Man TT comparisons thrown in there because of course the Isle of Man TT will be thrown into any conversation about motorcycle rider safety like like that's the smoking gun it's 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 not pretty and no listen like if anything I am very glad that in the last couple of years riders have taken it upon themselves to speak out more about specifically not racing in dangerous because we got it last year during that uh, at Spielberg for the Red Bull Ring race where we saw riders like Jonas Volger, Cal Crutchlow, Alicia Spagaro, and even Mark Marquez say, we are not going to race if it's wet. And Mark Marquez at, at the time was championship leader. He was willing to sacrifice possibly 25 points for his own safety. Something that we would never get. We never, we've never had these sorts of conversations regarding that in bike racing. Yeah, Mark, Marquez said, Mark Marquez said on the Saturday that, you know, I'm a racer and I love to race, but if these conditions are... the, the if we have these conditions tomorrow... We can't race. And I remember sitting about 10 feet from him, and you could see the genuine sadness on his face at having to say that. Um, yeah. he, wants, he wants to get out there and have a motorcycle race. Um, and of course. put aside the fact that this essentially boosts his already very strong chances of winning the world title this year because there's one right. less race for people to catch him up. Um, but he wants to go out there and have a race. He wants to go out there and entertain the fans that paid a lot of money to go and watch it on Sunday. Um, and you know, it, it hurt him very deeply as much as it hurt anyone. Um, that we weren't going to get a race on the Sunday if the rain came um, as we thought it would do. Um, now, in terms of why this happened and in terms of where blame should be apportioned, um, which in many ways isn't really um, the story now. The story is where we go from here. Um, mm. But but we, I think it's it, as Silverstone's going to conduct its own internal investigation into what's happened... Let's conduct our own. And and you know in the past where anyone who's listened to any sort of Motorsport 101 montage knows that there's occasionally the odd rant from Dre in there um, but about Ferrari or about Sky F1. Well, stand yeah, by for mine about Silverstone. Um, oh, oh, hang on. Well, Get the popcorn out, lads. I'll shut up for the next... Well, <laughs> because no one... As I said at the start of the show, no one comes out of this Grand Prix weekend looking good um, with the exception no. of perhaps the riders and Alex Rins. Um, now... You can apportion the blame in a number of directions for this. Um, and when the race was cancelled at around quarter past four on, or ten past four on the Sunday afternoon, and a hastily arranged press conference took place with Mike Webb, the race director, Franco Ancini of the uh, Safety Commission, and, uh, and Loris Caparossi, who's the Central Riders representative on the Safety Commission. Um, the very first thing that Mike Webb said in that press conference was, you know, this is down to the track surface. Um, mm-hmm. And to that, he is absolutely right. Um, the Absolutely. the root of the blame for this lies at Silverstone's door um, for what took, for what took place last weekend. Now, the resurfacing of the track, which I referred to earlier, um, on the say so of the riders of MotoGP who said the surface was too bumpy for them, um, was taken. It took place over the winter. You may have remembered the social media post around the time of Silverstone, who were tweeting about the fact that their surface was finally being relayed again. For the first time since, I believe, 1996. Um, now, 
these three services was done by a company called um, Aggregate Industries, um, whose social media mentions have blown up since the weekend. Um, Can't possibly imagine why. As you can imagine, uh, as a tweet that they put out uh, months ago, essentially um, being proud of their own handiwork, has been instantly dug up. Um, oh, no. Now, they obviously are going to get it in the neck for this, understandably. Um, but don't let that detract from Silverstone and from their blaming this because they are the company, they are the circuit that commissioned Aggregate Industries to do this job. They deemed Aggregate good enough to do this work. They paid them to do this work. The buck stops with them. The buck stops with Silverstone. Um, and Stuart Pringle, the uh, essentially the MD of the circuit, spoke on the Saturday evening, um, uh, basically after qualifying, before race day even took place. And he said that if we had, in his words, normal rain on the Sunday and not the monsoonical downpour we got in FP4 that racing would take place no problem even though this theory had already been debunked by just about every rider in the field earlier that evening yeah, um, yeah. and it was later proven that in on the Sunday that basically any amount of standing water on the track caused an essential cancellation of what we got now onto mm. the track surface and just to explain why this was the case the uh, the track surface up at Stowe um, the drainage of it on this new surface was very very poor to the point that they were trying to put some cuts in the surface on Saturday evening to try and assist with drainage. Um, and any time you're doing that to a track surface the night before the race, you know you've got problems. Um, Definitely. Now, <laughs> moving your head to the to the Sunday, um, what you also saw was a very shiny track surface. I've already mentioned to you how Carl Crutchlow said it was like a mirror. Um, this was partly down to the track surface resurfacing, also down to the fact that the titanium skid plates on the Formula 1 cars polish the track surface as they go over it. Mm -hmm. And essentially, whenever we get standing water, it doesn't clear away. It doesn't drain off to the side of the racetrack. It doesn't move at all. It just sits on top of the surface because the surface is so polished. So even when right. you, even if you were to go by the theory of, well, let's put some bikes on the track and let's get the water out of the way, the water wasn't getting cleared anywhere. It was just sitting on mm -hmm. the racetrack. Um, which essentially was why you saw bikes you know, aquaplaning on top of the surface and, and disappearing straight off. Um, now on to Dorna. Uh, Dorna, I've come in for a bit of criticism on the Sunday based on the fact that they delayed the race so much. Now, I don't want to criticise Dorna too much for this um, because they had, they obviously had many, many fans in the grandstands, 70-odd thousand fans in the grandstands who were freezing their you-know-whats off waiting for a Grand Prix. And may well have just wanted to receive some information, good or bad, to enable them to decide whether they were going to stick around or not. And I understand mm. that point of view completely. Um, Dom, who I've mentioned already, um, who was a race maker at Silverstone last weekend, so he was essentially a volunteer helping the, uh, the paying public get their way around the circuit last weekend, said that already as early as 2 o'clock last Sunday afternoon, people were leaving. You know, people were giving up on it already. Wow. Uh, now... In my view, before I continue with this, Dre, I'll bring you in on this one. Um, I don't really want to criticise Dorna too much for this because they have 70,000 fans who've paid a lot of money to get there. They have right. millions of fans in several countries all over the world that have tuned in to see a motorcycle race. And surely Dorna have got every right to give that race every possible opportunity to go ahead. I completely agree with that notion. Listen, like, organising a Grand Prix is friggin' difficult, okay? Like, you had over 2,000 volunteers taking part in this race weekend, from race makers to stewards to marshals. 
you know, to caterers, security, it goes on and on. There's a lot that goes into a Grand Prix weekend behind the scenes that we don't even contemplate and think about. Um, on top of that, you think of all the TV networks, all the TV stations that have had to book out, they've had to book out slots for live sport. It's hard out there, man. And Dorna, the, like for them, cancelling not just a Grand Prix but the entire weekend. That is the absolute worst case scenario. We've that's, not that's been the last here. Resort. Yeah, it's the absolute last resort. They've not been in this spot for nearly forty years, and for good reason. They will find a way to get races get races done. We've had issues like before, like Phillip Island when they had the diamond cut surface and tires are only lasting ten laps. You know, we've had areas like Mategi where fog and the, the helicopter not being able to take off, meaning we had severe delays to races there. We still got a Grand Prix weekend. Dorna are normally the best in the business of being able to hash out a Grand Prix, hash out a plan, and think on the fly to be able to pull this off. And they, they, they had are... already done this over the course of the weekend by moving the Grand Prix schedule around. I mean, it's it's obviously it's not great if you're a Moto three or a Moto two rider. Um, essentially, you'll be you're being sacrificed to get the MotoGP race in. Um, but they'd already moved MotoGP from the eleven uh, thirty slot, uh, sorry, from the twelve, the one o'clock slot to the eleven thirty slot to get it in before they when they thought the worst of the weather was going to arrive. Fortunately, right. it arrived before the MotoGP race took place anyway. Um, so they were snookered either way. Um, now, one theory that was already put forward um, when the race was delayed for the first time on Sunday morning was, let's just race on Monday. Um, then you know this came from. Cal Crutchlow, this came from Takaki Nakagami. We saw them holding up that, that sign in their garage saying, let's come yes. back tomorrow, whatever it was. Um, yeah. And there was a discussion within the teams that, you know, should we come back tomorrow? Javier Poncheral, who spoke, as always, very eloquently, very honestly to Gavin Emmett on the Sunday afternoon um, when the cancellation was immediately announced. Uh, he said that this decision or the decision to uh, cancel the race entirely and not run it on the Monday, uh, this was, you know, quashed by a number of factory teams, he, he phrased it. Now, he didn't mention which teams these were, although we believe Yamaha were one of them, given that they had testing books for Wednesday um, mm -hmm. at Aragon. Um, and obviously, they can't get to that test if they race on the Monday. There's just not time to transport everything across. Um, but equally, um, as Dre's already um, pointed out to you all, there are a number of... There are so many moving parts that go towards a Grand Prix taking place that you don't see. Um, behind the the twenty four bikes on track and and what what else we see in here, you know, in terms of security, in terms of marshalling. Um, now Stuart Higgs, who is the race director for BSB, who also organises the world class events that take place in Britain, be it World Superbike or MotoGP, he said that he had all his infrastructure. You know, he had a you know, the provisions were in place from his point of view to race on the Monday, and the factory teams or a few of the factory teams, essentially put the kibosh on this. Um, mm -hmm. Now. I would say this as well. If you're movie star Yamaha, um, given how competitive they were going on the Saturday and on the Friday, that's not a decision that they would have taken lightly either. Um, you're to right. Decide that, you know, to decide, you know, they had a real opportunity if it was dry, given how well they were going. But also, given that their bike is third best in the in the dry, they had a real opportunity if it was wet. That may have prevented them with their best opportunity for Valentino Rossi or Maverick Minialis to win a race this year. Um, so they're not gonna they're not gonna take the decision lightly to decide we're not gonna go out there and surely they were taking that decision not only because of the testing they had scheduled but also in the interests of their riders who had already made it clear to them that they didn't feel it was safe enough um, to go out and race um, on the Sunday. Um, 
Now, continuing on Dorna, um, who, as Drake quite rightly says, has been brilliant in the past when it comes to scheduling and ensuring a race takes place. Now, don't think for one second that Dorna are blameless in this because they're not. Uh, now, uh, when uh, Franco and Cini of the Safety Commission was asked um, in this hastily arranged press conference on the Sunday, uh, he was asked about the checks that were done on this track after it was resurfaced. Because you may remember, you may have seen it in the media, Cal Crutchlow went there a couple of months ago. Uh, they did some running on this track. Obviously, Dorna, whenever a new track comes onto the calendar or whenever a track is resurfaced entirely um, or there is a new configuration, whatever it may be, Dorna have to go and homologate it, um, which involves obviously checking the track surface and all that sort of stuff. And the question was asked, when you check this, do you check it in the wet? To which Franco and Cini's immediate reply was, no, we only check it in the dry. Um, now, Without sounding too much like Captain Hindsight here, Dre, we can always speak mm. with the benefit of hindsight and speak like we know better, but surely, given that MotoGP, motorcycle racing, motorsport, is an all-weather sport, it's not like cricket, where you only take it, you only take part if the weather's dry, surely the very least you must do is do your, do your due diligence on the track, be it dry or wet. Yeah, like where's Bernie at? Get some somebody get the sprinklers out. Um, no, like Silverstone. This should not have been a surprise to them. No, it shouldn't. Like as you mentioned, a third of of the British Grand Prix you've had at Silverstone have have been wet. Donington, the last time they raced there in 2010, was wet. There, you have this British Grand Prix taking place in August. There is more than a slight possibility that you're going to have a rain affected weekend without fail so i do not understand the negligence that's going on here where you're testing a track in the dry you have to test it in the wet too especially one which is more notorious for wet conditions like silverstone so i think it's silly that they've that they've not addressed that um in the course of their testing for this new layout i think that's a silly decision and I think it's one that has come back to bite them because if they had done a wet test, they would have surely seen what would have happened here. Even if you want to hide, heed the warnings of the F1 guys like Lewis Hamilton and Carlos Sainz, who both came out and said, I feel sorry for the MotoGP guys after their, after their race earlier on in the year in July. They said, I feel sorry for the MotoGP guys because the bumps are off the charts. Something clearly wasn't right here from a long time ago and no one decided to address this if it got wet, and uh, they're all paying the penalty for that now. Yeah, and that, Dre has just brought up perhaps the silliest part of this whole thing. The whole reason this circuit was resurfaced since last year was to get rid of the bumps, and they didn't even fucking do that. The, the no. bumps were even, well, the, the bumps were arguably as bad, if not worse, depending on which rider you spoke to um after last weekend some said that the track surface was grippier in the dry than it was last year but you'd expect that because it's a bloody new track surface of course it's gonna be grippier um you know if it's not grippier than a 10 year old surface then then again you know you've done a bad job on it um but the very fact that they didn't even solve the primary problem that they resurfaced it for and created another glaring problem um again just highlights what a poor job was done um on this track surface and another question that was asked of 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 Dorna and of you know in terms of the British Grand Prix going forward was are they going to perhaps do some testing before next year's race in you know a simulated wet track surface as we saw them doing Qatar right at the start of this year when they were exploring mm -hmm. the avenues of a wet Qatar Grand Prix under lights 
they simulated a wet track. They sent some you know, machines around to hose the track down and put some bikes out there to test the, gr the grip levels in the wet. That is certainly a, an avenue that MotoGP has to explore for next year. Um, but at the very least, right, where does this leave the future of the British Grand Prix? Now, we know there's a contract in place to run the British Grand Prix at Silverstone beyond this year. Um, but there are countries and tracks queuing up to get onto the MotoGP calendar. We know this. Um, and surely Silverstone have a massive problem here. Um, if they want to host the MotoGP race in the future, surely that is dicey at best on this current surface, given that they know that if the rain, if rain falls in any degree of heaviness, we can't race. So surely if the British Grand Prix wants to, with certainty, host a Grand Prix in the future... What are their options? Surely the only obvious option I see is resurface it again, which costs a lot of money. Yeah, they're going to have to do this again. Silverstone is a track that is already in danger because we all know that their Formula 1 future is hanging by a thread right now, given that that track is losing millions a year every time they host an F1 race. That was, that's been well documented. And if they the lose the Formula 1 long term, this, along with World Endurance Championship, essentially become their highlight headline events and they're in serious trouble if that's the case because their cash flow is awful enough as it is and this and their f1 race is a venue that draws in 140,000 on race day um and despite that it's still been running at a loss for the last three or four years and to the tune of several million pounds may i add um yes yeah, so now you're gonna have to refund 70,000 paying spectators from sunday yeah that's not going to be cheap that's going to be millions and millions of pounds worth of refunds um that's not going to be pretty like and yeah they're going the, the the track organizers are going to have egg on their face um refunding millions of pounds worth of supplies of tickets um and of course the very expensive uh job of uh re-tarmacking six and a half kilometers of racetrack um it's embarrassing. It is completely embarrassing that this country's number one racetrack and motorsport venue cannot host a bike race in its current state of form if it rains. It's humiliating. There's no other way to describe it. It's humiliating for the fans, for the organizers, and for MotoGP. Everybody looks like idiots here, and nobody wins. Like It's, it's, it's ugly for everyone involved. And if Silverstone... I mean, if they're going to have any sort of face-saving measure, they have to refund all the fans that showed up on Sunday morning for that Grand Prix weekend, and they have to resurface the track. Otherwise, how can Dorna risk racing there again under their current contract if they don't do anything to address the poor drainage and the awful track layout that was literally dangerous to the riders out there? They have to resurface it. Otherwise, they're going to leave Dorna with no choice but to go to Donington. And nobody really wants that. Well, maybe I wouldn't say nobody wants that, as there's been a lot of debate about whether they want to run there instead of Donington. But the the point is, like, Silverstone should not be opening up that conversation due to their own incompetence. No, no there is a, a contract in place that runs for another two years uh, at Silverstone. They have a contract to host a British Grand Prix, MotoGP, um, until 2020. And part of me does feel sorry for Silverstone, don't get me wrong, because obviously no one wants to see this happen, and no one wants to of see course. a circuit left with this kind of egg on their face. Given that, we have to say, Dre, uh, in, in fairness to Silverstone, they have put a lot of work in, in over the last few years to try and make Silverstone a bike-friendly track. I mean, not just in terms of you know the 
infrastructure they're putting in place to you know make it more accessible for bike fans make it more you make the views better for bike fans make the entire spectator experience for bike fans better than it already was because it is a circuit that is immediately associated with cars with formula one many historic motorcycle racing fans of a certain age will immediately associate the motorcycle grand prix of great britain with donington park and 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 this does as you say provide people with the perfect opportunity to say well let's go back to donington then Uh, i mean i on a number of occasions during last weekend heard people saying those very words and this is before it even rained this was just down to just very basic clerical issues taking place at Silverstone, like you know mix-ups that some one or two fans that i were queuing with had with tickets and they were saying oh send it back to donington that's what i say um Mm. and you know a number of people were complaining on sunday during the delays as if donington wouldn't have had the same bloody weather themselves guys Mm. um you know Silverstone can't control the rain um but Silverstone as well cannot hide behind this and just say that it was the weather's fault uh, that this happened. They have to look at themselves here um, and try and get to the root of this. Stuart Pringle, who, as I mentioned, is essentially the MD um, of Silverstone Circuit. He is the managing director of Silverstone Circuit. Now, he released a statement on the Sunday, and I'll read it to you. He said, Firstly, and most importantly, I would like to apologize to all of the race fans for the most trying and foulest days at Silverstone. I'm truly sorry this has happened. If I had known fans would have to wait for six hours in these conditions with this outcome, I would have taken the decision to cancel the event at midday. We were willing to cancel the meeting much earlier, but I was assured by Dorna that the teams were willing to race if conditions improved. I am very conscious of the amount of money people have spent on this event. We will be contacting our customers next week to explain what we are doing about the cancellation of this event. Nobody is more disappointed by the outcome of today than me and the incredibly hard-working team at Silverstone, who have done everything in their power to try and ensure the race could happen. It was not our decision to cancel the racing. This was a sporting matter not under Silverstone control and was a decision made by the riders and Dorna along with the safety commission and race direction. A plan was made at midday today. In consultation with Dorna and race direction, we looked closely at the weather predictions provided by the Met Office, with whom we were in regular contact all afternoon. The further delay this afternoon was due to the forecast of the raid subsiding. However, the final decision was made without our knowledge or input. We kept the decision to race open in good faith. However, this was taken out of our hands. All the work we have done here to make Silverstone a better place for motorcycle racing has been done with the best of intentions. We will be making further investigations into this matter immediately after the bank holiday to understand whether our newly resurfaced track played a part in today's inability to stage races. We will be reviewing all the data we have on the track and gathering more, and together with the contractor, Aggregate Industries, a full investigation will be carried out. Once again, my sincere personal apologies for today's events. Can I also extend my thanks and gratitude to all of the marshals, medics, security, catering, track, and everyone else working on this event um, this weekend for their extremely hard work and dedication in trying to keep this event open. Uh, now, uh, Dre, your initial reactions to that statement. I mean, he he hasn't tried necessarily to hide behind the weather and blame the weather for it. Um, he does obviously try and point to the fact that Silverstone were prepared to wait a bit longer um, than than Dorna and then the riders and that they cancelled the race before Silverstone were really consulted on it. Um, but surely even before any investigation takes place, you just need to take place you just need to take a look back through history and look at wet weather races that take took place in twenty eleven, in twenty fifteen. Last year we had uh, a perfectly dry weekend from start to finish, but in twenty sixteen we had a heavily rain affected qualifying session. Mm-hmm. And yet this year, the first sight of rain, we have problems it could only be attributed to the track surface. Exactly. I mean, to be fair, they pretty much take the brunt of the responsibility here. 
and and they they were very open in their communication that yes we were talking to Dorna we were willing to give them all the time they needed to try and run this Grand Prix it just didn't happen obviously they they sincerely apologize and I'm sure it was sincere and I'm sure in the in the coming days we'll hear plans about refunds um it was uh, it, it was as safe a message they could put out. They're going to conduct their own in private inv- investigation into what happened, and I'm sure there'll be more details on that in the coming weeks and months as to w- just what happened here. You can't really say much more than that from Sil- from Silverstone. They they tried the best they could. Um, sadly, it's fallen on their laps. They were accountable for for this re- resurfacing. They were told what they needed to do. They got it very wrong on this occasion, and they have to take the brunt of it. I'm afraid and. There's 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 no nice way of saying that. There's no getting around it. And I know Silverstone want. I'm sure they had. They gave it every chance to have a race, but this ultimately lands on their feet, and it's it's sad for everybody involved. But that's just what this is. This is that's just how it needs to be said sometimes. Unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, the the sequence of events to sort of round up on on this whole thing. The the sequence of events that led to where we got to um were lamentable um and i'm not talking about the rain that we got i'm talking about the sort of the sequence of events in the relaying of the track and the delays we got um none of that um you know none of that you know paints the sport the circuit or or anything in a particularly good light however um once we saw what we saw on saturday you know there was no other option than to cancel the events on the sunday because of what we'd seen because of what we'd seen to tita rabat um, because of the dangers involved, um, and and nobody, nobody can take these MotoGP riders um, and say that they they should be showing more bravery. They should be, you know, in any way be considered, you know, wusses for not going out and racing. They're the guys that are putting their lives at risk at 220 miles an hour. Um, they are the guys who saw one of their colleagues, you know, have one of his legs smashed to pieces and very nearly lose his own life 24 hours earlier. Uh, Tito mm-hmm. Rabat, who's a very, very popular member of the uh, of the MotoGP paddock, um, and you know when you see something like that, you know that's that's bound to to you know you know leave you taken aback, to put it mildly, and to think very carefully about what you would do in similar conditions the next day. Um, mm-hmm. And the the decision to cancel the race meeting in the end was the right one. Um, I, I, and I don't like saying that because uh, you know I like everyone. Yeah, I may have been there as media, but I was there to see a race just like everyone, and I was. I was gutted when the race was cancelled, but the, my overriding feeling is this. I would much rather be sat there rather flat and rather disappointed writing a race report um, on a race that got cancelled due to weather conditions and a, and a pretty poorly relayed track than to have to sit there and write a race report that one of the riders in this sport had lost his life on Sunday. Um, yes. You know, the, 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 it was certainly the lesser of those two evils. Um, and, you know, when when we're talking about a sport that is inherently dangerous and in motorcycle racing, certainly much more than car racing, you can never make it totally dangerous. Um, you know, one of the developments we saw last weekend was a new, um, a new uh, innovation to riders leathers where they have essentially have an led lights on the shoulder pads, um, which would enable a rider who's a downed rider on the track. It would enable riders following to see him slightly better because he'd see the flashing light in the track, yep. which is a brilliant innovation uh, made by uh, the leather manufacturers. So it's a sport that will never stop trying to make things safer. And ultimately, when faced with a pretty lousy set of circumstances, they made the only, mo- the only call they could, unfortunately. Um, now, I was walking through the racetrack, leaving the circuit at around half past six on, on Sunday evening. And I have to say, there wasn't a drop of rain. 
Um, so, of course. So, in theory, in theory, there may have been a slight possibility that if they'd have waited and waited and waited till about six o'clock, they may have been able to squeeze a race in. But by that point, I think they'd all decided let's just knock this on the head and you know let's call it a call it a bad day and get out of here. Um, yeah. And I, and I can't blame them for that at all. Um, but but as I mentioned, Dre, in terms of where the sport goes from here. It, it, it's it's a you know not just only Silverstone they've obviously got cases to answer they've got a pretty poorly resurfaced track to try and get to the bottom of but Dorna MotoGP in general in terms of the way this whole situation was handled they've also learned some pretty valuable and very harsh lessons here indeed and and you know Dorna have to take some of the brunt here too because they've just cancelled around and it's not directly their fault. Um, but they have to hold their, their track promoters more accountable for extreme elements like this. Um, you can't keep going around re-signing all these tracks left, right, and center, trying to form the backbone of your calendar for years and years, and then basically fuck up one of your most important rounds by not testing a new resurfacing in the wet especially in Britain. I think that's ridiculous that they completely ignored that. I think I think it's ludicrous to me that uh, you're willing to test Qatar for a wet race, but you're not willing to test Britain for a, for a wet race. I, I, I don't understand the logic behind that at all. They've, they'll learn some hard lessons from this. It's like, don't get me wrong, they, they're only in the minority when it comes to, when it comes to sh- a portion in the blame for what happened this weekend, but they will learn from this and they will, and I'm sure they will go out of their way to make sure this doesn't happen again, because this was an embarrassing weekend as mentioned for everyone involved that it even gotten to this point. And yeah, um, there's no doubt about it. I'm sure Dorna will learn from this again. As I said before, they are the best in the business for this. Um, when it comes to organizing race weekends and compromising and finding ways to get races sorted. But this one was a bad failure, a really bad failure, and um, yeah, they 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 have to do better, and they have to do better. They have to do right by their championship, no matter which way you look at it. So, yes, um, a, a a sad weekend for all involved, and a frustrating one for all involved. But hopefully, one Dawn can learn from in future. Yeah, a sad weekend for MotoGP, a sad weekend for the British Grand Prix. Um, there were some. There were some actually some kind of sort of funny sort of positive notes that we can sort of take from this. And we're going to talk about the track action that we did see last weekend because uh, there were actually some stories to take from last weekend on track. Um, it has to be said. Um, first of all, one thing that made me laugh on the Sunday, um, as Hervé Pontreval pointed out, two riders in the uh, hastily arranged meeting with Erta one, were still up for a race. Jean Zarco and Jack Miller. Of course Jack Miller wanted to race Shocker. on a Sunday. <laughs> Jack Miller was out there saying, well, hey, they are, you just basically go, you pick the better lines. You just, you know, you avoid the wet stuff. And, you know, this is coming from the guy who gambled on the slicks at the end of Q2. Uh, Shocked. Is, you know, Shocked, I tell you. Yeah, kamikaze uh, strategy from Jack Miller, who went out on slicks and then arrived at Stoke Corner and just ploughed straight off the road. Um, of course. Which was, was hilarious. Um, but, but yeah, understandably, um, they were in the minority. Um before we come on to actually, before we come on to the track action that we got prior to um, prior to Sunday, Dre, the sporting uh, result of this, of course, is what it does to the championships. Now, uh, it's unlikely that we're going to get uh, any kind of replacement in terms of allocation of points. You know, I don't think MotoGP is going to go down the route of adding an extra race in at another venue or making any races double points, as we've seen in other sports. They're not going to do any of that. It's essentially just going to drop around off the calendar. Um, which has some severe knock-on effects. Mark Marquez is now 
even shorter odds than he was already to win the world championship. Um, he yeah. now only has seven races with which his um, his very hefty points margin can be closed down. Um, mm-hmm. Moto three, likewise, Marco Bezzecchi, who qualified badly after crashing at the end of qualifying, um, starting down on the fourth row with jo- uh, Jorge Martin on pole. Now only has one less round for him to be chased down. But perhaps the luckiest man um, in terms of championship terms last weekend has to be Miguel Oliveira, uh, who in the Moto2 class on his KTM qualified down in 23rd position on the grid, having had no pace for most of the weekend with Francesco Bagnaia on pole. Um, Although it's not in the circumstances that he would have wished, Miguel Oliveira has got away with one. He has got away with one. KTM has been notoriously bad in qualifying all year long. Um, This has been a trend that's been going on for most of the season, and he got away with one. The IRL Provisionally speaking, Oliveira way at the back of the field. I mean, we all know Oliveira is a lightning fast starter, but that would have been too big a deficit for him to overcome, most likely, and that probably would have hemorrhaged him more points in that title fight. So no matter which way you slice it, um, Oliveira got away with one here badly. Mm, he did. Uh, very fortunate, but uh, as we mentioned, he's not in the circumstances at all um, that he would have wished. Um, now we did get a qualifying session, uh, as I mentioned on the uh, on the Saturday. Although that in itself was delayed based on what we saw uh, in FP4. Uh, and starting with Q1, Dre, um, the uh, first qualifying session, which of course was taking place without Tito Rabat. Um, now people will be looking at me and knowing which riders perhaps I've been elite aligned to in the past, and um, having no surprise Never. at all that I'm saying this very thing. Um, but let's let's call a spade a spade, Dre. How good was Bradley Smith? Um, can you tell who wrote the set list here, people? I'll give you a hint. It wasn't me. Um, <laughs> At one point um, in qualifying one, he was 3.7 seconds quicker than the rest of the field. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> no matter which way you slice it, that's an arse whooping. Um, and yeah, Bradley Smith was just phenomenally brave out there in the wet conditions. And it, it, it often becomes a matter of that in these wet sort of sessions. And Bradley Smith, who knows Silverstone very well, with it being a home round and whatnot, um, the experience shined through. Bradley was spectacular, qualified in eighth overall in the end by getting into Q2 um, via Q1. And uh, he joked about it in the paddock on Sunday afterwards, saying, hey, you know, if, if, if we're not going to race, can we call it now? Can we, can we go off the qualifying results? Because my bonuses start at eighth. Mm, yeah, yeah. Uh, so that, that was quite funny. But um, yeah, Bradley Smith was phenomenal in that, in that Q1 session, immensely brave out there and re- the rewards for it. He did, he did. And he was actually, after the first flying laps, of, first time laps of Q2, he was on provisional pole um, as well. Mark Marquez was about 700 slower than him. And then with a minute to go of qualifying, he was on a provisional front row starting spot um, before conditions obviously improved and the last man over the line ended up getting um, the best of the conditions. And Jorge Lorenzo took pole position. Ducati um, taking their first 1-2 in a qualifying session since 2006 uh, when uh, Capirossi and uh, Gibernau took a 1-2 um, in qualifying. Um, they will, of course, be disappointed that we didn't get a race because they were looking very, very competitive in the dry conditions. Um, mm. But as I mentioned, Dre, um, Movistar Yamaha, um, one of the teams that, if we believe what Javier Ponteral says to us, were uh, in favour of... Uh, cancelling the race and not running it potentially on bank holiday Monday. Um, but did we perhaps see green shoots of recovery for that team? Because every rider we spoke to um, seemed to suggest that on pure dry weather race pace, the fastest man on track in every session really 
was Maverick Vinales. Um, and you know, Silverstone historically is a track that suits both Maverick Vinales and Valentino Rossi and the Yamaha, given that it's more of a chassis track than an engine and you know electronics track. Um, but surely Yamaha have to take any positives where they can get them. And Maverick looked as competitive and as confident at Silverstone last weekend as he's looked anywhere all season. Yeah, he really did. Um, his dry pace was phenomenal. Let's not forget he's won here before and he's generally gone well around here on the Yamaha pass. It's a track that suits the Yamaha a little bit more. Their deficits are not as as badly exposed. It's something as a fast, high-flowing track. It's a chassis track as opposed to a real power circuit where, you know, Ducati and Honda have had the advantage for most of the season. So, you know, if you if you hide some Yamaha shortcoming in the bike is good. We know Maverick seems to have a bit of a higher ceiling compared to Valentino. And yeah, the threat was Maverick going into Saturday's running. And of course, we never got that coming to fruition. But uh, Vignola's looked as good in fr- on Fridays he had throughout the entire season so far. So maybe it's a sign that you know Yamaha has gotten better. I'd like to see how they get on on a more complicated circuit like Aragon in a couple of weeks' time to see how they're really faring on this one. But uh, a positive sign for the team, nonetheless. Yeah, positive sign for the team. Um, it wasn't, uh, as Dre mentioned, the best of uh, Saturdays in the end for them. They qualified 11th and 12th. Maverick Vignola is probably the uh, the least happy rider to see it raining, given how uh, uh, competitive he had been in the dry. He'd been quickest in uh, in free practice one. He'd been uh, second quickest, a very close second to Andrea Dovizioso in free practice two. And then he was quickest in, ironically, a dry morning warm-up uh, on the Sunday. Um, all, the, all the ironies. And I just want to point that out as well, just while, while I'm on that subject. Uh, one of the many uh, theories that was bandied about by people who perhaps don't know the ins and outs of the sports too well was... You know, why didn't they just race at nine o'clock on Sunday morning? Um, given that you know those conditions were bone dry. Um, now there are two very key reasons. One, um, well, the fact there are probably three reasons. One, the broadcasting window—it's it's pretty poor to run a race at nine o'clock on a Sunday morning. Yeah. Um, but that's probably the least important of them. Number two, Silverstone needs to be able to get spectators, seventy thousand of them, safely and uh, and orderly into a racetrack. And by having a race so early in the morning, they just cannot do that. Um, and you're expecting people to um, be travelling down very busy motorways at you know six seven o'clock on a Sunday morning, um, which isn't really doable. And equally, there is there is it is in the regulations that you need to have a minimum time between morning warm up and the race. So quite frankly, mm-hmm. unless they'd had the warm up on the Saturday evening or at six o'clock on Sunday morning, there was no way they could have run the race any earlier than they tried to. Um, so again, that's just uh, that's one perhaps misconception that that some people um, perhaps needed clearing up. Unfortunately, I normally give you some uh, changing championship standings, but as you probably uh, if you listened to the show two weeks ago, these are exactly as they were. Mark Marquez leads it with seven races to go by fifty nine points from Valentino Rossi, two hundred and one players, one forty two, with Jorge Lorenzo third, a point clear of Andrea Davizioso. Um Moto two again unchanged. Francesco Bagnaia leads Miguel Oliveira by three points. Uh, and in Moto3, Marco Bezzecchi retains his championship lead. He is 12 points clear of Jorge Martin. In all three classes of those, only seven races to go. Now, the next of which we try again in a week's time at Mizano um, on the Adriatic coast of Italy.
Right, let's do the news. Um, and let's uh, let's continue, um, really, on the theme of last weekend at Silverstone. Um, and one of the stories that kind of started to come to light last weekend surrounds Bradley Smith, who we just discussed, um, who is coming towards the end of his time with KTM. He won't be riding for them beyond the end of this season. Um, had probably his best race weekend of the season last weekend um, on track before the rain came. Um, he had been eyeing up a testing role at KTM. That now looks like it's not going to come to fruition based on the lack of wild cards available to KTM test riders next year. Um, he also been eyeing up a testing role at Yamaha. Um, and Bradley Smith was rather disappointed to hear Lynn Jarvis speak on uh, on British TV last Saturday and say that their test rider next year would not be British. Which Bradley Smith oh. immediately took to me. Oh, so it's not me then. <laughs> um, so, uh, so yeah, that was the uh, that was the news that Bradley wasn't looking to hear. It looks, Dre, um, as if he's going to land a testing role with Aprilia, um, who are going to be running as their race riders next year, Alicia Spargo and Andre Iannone. Scott Redding, uh, as has been well documented, is out of that team at the end of the season and he's now giving zero fucks um, no. in what he says about the team uh, in the media. Um, now, putting to one side for a moment the obvious uh, problems at Aprilia uh, in terms of their organisation and their competitiveness... If you're going to sign a test rider for a MotoGP team, is Bradley Smith about as good an option as there is out there? Uh, probably. Um, he's still a, 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 a one of the better MotoGP riders in the field. Um, Scott Redding is a PR nightmare. You don't want him on your books if you can avoid it. He's, he's as good a rider as he is. He's throwing the team under the bus in, in quite disrespectful manner. Even if I understand this sentiment, you can't say the things he said about your team. It's, it's like you just can't do that. Bradley is a is a is a docile, you know, he's a stern character, but he's not who's not afraid to speak his mind. But at the same time, he always does it in a way that's respectful and classy. And he's a very fast motorcycle racer still. So I'm glad that Bradley's no longer thinking about retirement at his age because he still has many a year in front of him. And the best way to keep yourself relevant is, hey, go to a pretty, you might get a couple of wild cards a year and see what happens. Mm. Um, you know, we know that, uh, you know, you know that KTM, uh, um, you know, still has Mika Calione, still has a very firm fleet of riders if he came down to it. So it was obvious that one was kind of kind of fall through on that one, which is a shame. But it's a good opportunity with a prayer, and there's no reason why he can't keep going with, with there and, you know, maybe see uh, see what can come up for him. Absolutely. And uh, and just to uh, to point out what, uh, what what Steve has said on our Discord server at the moment, he's uh, listening in live. Oh, you mean <laughs> calling your employer's product a piece of shit isn't reflected well back on you? Yeah, who would have thought, thought it? <laughs> Um, but yes, yeah, so Scott Redding's uh, only going to be on the move next year. His options look to be either Moto2 or BSB for next season. We don't yet know which direction he's going to go in um, for 2019. Um, but yeah, on Bradley Smith, he's, as Dre mentioned, he's not a ride that particularly rocks the boat. He's a very genial chap. He's a very positive guy at the best of times. Um, mm. But also in terms of um, technically, in terms of developing a bike, he's very analytical uh, right, he is highly intelligent, um, and as Dre mentioned, he not only does he speak his mind, but he speaks very, very well. Um, and his feedback would be important to Aprilia. Now, whether any level of rider feedback is going to make that operation move forward is another matter entirely. Um, but um, but Bradley Smith, I think, is as good a rider out there in terms of whenever he's uh, been running in Mustard as a race rider. We've seen this with Tech Three, um, as well as trying to improve himself as a rider. He's always very, very analytical, and he's got a very good technical brain on him in terms of trying to improve his machine and. In terms of riders, bike setup and electronics and all that sort of stuff, he's very, very good and very intelligent um, in that aspect. So, 
in terms of the boxes that need ticking for a test rider, Bradley Smith ticks them all. Um, and it's, of course, not the role he would like to have uh, in 2019. But Bradley Smith's intentions now are to try and secure a MotoGP race seat for 2020. Uh, and his best chance of doing that, he clearly feels, would be to test for Aprilia next year, the odd wildcard appearance in MotoGP next year with Aprilia, and potentially, if either Elish Spargo or Andre Iannone departs that team at the end of 2019, he may then step in for 2020. Um, we shall see uh, on that one, but we wish Bradley Smith all the best, not just for uh, the remainder of this season with KTM, but what looks like being a testing role with uh, Aprilia next season. Uh, now, sticking with Silverstone, um, not that I've had enough press for one week, but um, they're going to be hosting the final regular season round of the British Superbike Championship next weekend, um, the first weekend um, of September. Um, now, uh, it was initially, of course, going to be run on the Grand Prix layout, the same layout that MotoGP went out on last weekend. But mm-hmm. um, as Greg Kane just tweeted earlier this evening, it's a good job we uh, recorded this uh, when we did and not slightly earlier in the week or earlier in the day, um, Greg Haynes is suggesting, Dre, that BSB are looking at running their final regular season round, their triple header next weekend, on the national layout. Yes, uh, seemingly the plan is they're trying to cut out. You know, they're, they're, they're trying to cut out the worst of the worst of the newly resurfaced uh, layout, which you know, which apparently is the hanger is the hanger straight up towards Stowe and then through Club is apparently the worst of it in case it started raining. Um, that was apparently plan B, but according to guys like Oddie Rushby and others, they're now coming out and saying it looks like they're just going to run they're just gonna run that layout whatever happens just to be on the safe side, which is fair. I know BSB doesn't want to have the same scenario befell it that Hon- that, uh, that uh, Dorna had um, this weekend. It makes uh, and let's sense. Let's not forget, BSB did race in heavily wet conditions in BSB Race 3 last year, and it was a complete farce. Yeah, it was a complete farce. It was a terrible spectacle. Um, and only seven bikes saw the flag, um, only three of them on the lead lap, um, which says it all, really. So, yeah, anything to avoid that fiasco again. So... If they're going to run a wet race, the national layout is a lot safer, a lot more risk-free. It has um, a lack of the new resurfacing that uh, has plagued the track um, because a part of it is, isn't normally raced on as much. So, yeah, it makes a lot more sense that way. And, hey, it's a, it's a, safe, it's a safer option overall than running the Grand Prix layout, which, of course, we all seen has had multiple problems. Hmm, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> just, to, just to explain for those that perhaps aren't quite familiar with it, the national layout at Silverstone... Um, cuts out um, the second half of Maggots and Beckett's and Chapel onto the Hangar Straight. You don't go down the Hangar Straight down to Stowe or through through Vale and Club and down past the Silverstone Wing. You turn off right um, around Beckett's area and go off down the Wellington Strait towards Brooklands. Um, and then obviously go back through the complex of Loughfield and down through Rooker onto the uh, National Pit Strait. So it would be a very, very short lap, uh, probably around a minute long. Um, but uh, as we as we've discussed, it probably cuts out the biggest problem area on this new surface. Um, and obviously, if BSB faces the same conditions as MotoGP last weekend, unless they um, are showing um, some rather questionable judgment decision making, they can't really run either. Um, as mm-hmm. MotoGP are proven, so they're going to run on the national layout. It appears next weekend. We'll preview that round a little bit more uh, on next week's show. Um, now, a lot of news did break at Silverstone uh, off track, which we'll bring to you now before we go for this week. Um, and the first story uh, sees one of the biggest, uh, probably the biggest World Superbike seat unfilled for next year has now been filled. 
Um, now, Chaz Davis hadn't been officially confirmed at Aruba Ducati 4 next year, but he now has. Um, that was almost like the side note to the actual main story that broke last Thursday <laughs> from Aruba Ducati. Um, because they've announced that Alvaro Bautista uh, will be joining their team um, next year as their second rider alongside Chaz Davis at Aruba Ducati. Um, and I've got to say, Dre, I mean, Bautista's still proven in the last few years that he is a very competitive MotoGP rider um, in the right conditions. He's been outperforming a two-year-old bike and obviously this year a one-year-old bike. Um, and that is probably, I mean... Given the level of riding in MotoGP, uh, if you're going to pluck a rider from MotoGP, that's probably about as good a pull as World Superbikes could expect to get. Yeah, this is a big pull. Uh, this is exactly the sort of pull I think Dorna were hoping for. You know, a a, a high midfield level MotoGP rider, a guy that's had multiple podiums, a world title in these in the lesser categories, if you want to call them that. And Alvaro Bautista, a, a massive veteran of the MotoGP field. Coming over the World Superbikes and a, a top tier works ride at that as well. I mean, it's, you, you mentioned it earlier. It is kind of funny. It's like, hey, Chas Davis is re signed. Great. Look at our shiny new Alvaro Bautista, everybody. Mm. Hey. It's like. And, and Chas- Greg Haynes did point out on Twitter as well. He said, uh, didn't, it's funny how through the official sports channels that this didn't come with the same. This came with a lot more fanfare than Haslam's announcement that Kawasaki came with. Sorry, Haslam. You're all news, Alvaro. It's like, it's like being start stroking him during the press conference it's great um i could have worded yeah, that better and, it, um, and, it, and it's almost like um world superbikes on social media channels are sort of showing deference to motor gp um in that they they see the arrival of a um midfield level motor gp rider as a much bigger story than a likely national champion um arriving into the world mm. championship at the kawasaki racing team it's funny it's funny how that turns out. You know, get get a Spanish. You know, if you, if you want to get some headlines, get a Spanish guy. Get a good yeah. Spanish guy. Get Alvaro Bautista. Alvaro. Uh, next yeah. thing you know, next, as they unveil him again, like for the fourteenth time, it's like, uh, yeah, it, it it feels like a golden goose sort of signing for Walter Bikes. And as I mentioned, it's it's, it's the sort of signing that I think Dorna was precisely asking for here. It's exactly what they wanted. They they talked about Walds being more of a viable secondary option four MotoGP riders that couldn't make it on their ever-shrinking grid, um, you know, go to Worlds, basically. And it's not going to be as simple as that because, you know, Worlds don't necessarily look at MotoGP like they're any better than some of their own homegrown guys um, and vice versa. Um, Seat Ray, Jonathan, for more information on that one. Mm. But, uh, yeah, as you, as you like, as I said, like it's a big pull for World Superbikes. It's a known name. It's a 16-year Grand Prix veteran of the MotoGP grid coming over into a, a factory. Well, a world champion, a one two five CC world champion, a, a a excellent rider, a guy that should be deep in the MotoGP field, if you ask me. Um, he's an excellent rider, has been for a long time. Did brilliant work with really shit Aprilia a couple of years ago. Was he's still a quality bike rider, and you know could easily be be rocking for a mid-level factory team right now i don't think anybody would really complain so for waltz to get a rider of his quality ducati might not have the best team in the field to have chas davis and alvaro bautista on there like that um i know haslam was the safe pick and so it wasn't the sexy pick for someone like a eugene laverty or whatnot but uh that's a hell of a coup for ducati and the series mm, it is it is a great coup and i, I did wonder i did wonder to myself when this was announced i was thinking um what would this? What would Alvaro Bautista's performances next year in World Superbike be, good or bad? 
would it in any way, and I kind of ask you this question, Dre, uh, do you think it would change perceptions of World Superbikes in any way? Um, or are they just set in stone? And I think I think of the attitude that MotoGP, the, the paddock as a whole, has towards World Superbikes. I don't think it takes it anywhere near as seriously as it should. Um, I don't think no. it. Be- I don't think it believes the level is anywhere near as high as I believe myself that it is. Um, I, you know, I still firmly believe that the likes of Ray, the likes of Davies, Lowe's, Van der Mark could probably go to MotoGP and, given the you know the right level of testing that any MotoGP rider would get, rather than just being parachuted in for the odd one-off replacement ride, as we've seen from all of those guys in the last seven or eight years. Uh, we saw Ray at, mm. at Repsol Honda. We saw Lowe's and Van der Mark both at Tech Three for standing appearances in the last few years. Give them an actual full preseason program and let them go out and compete, and I think they would be very competitive um, in MotoGP. I think Jonathan Ray would be as good as anybody, perhaps with the exception of Mark Marquez. Um, mm. But if if Bautista, say Bautista goes there and wins the championship next year, I think that's just going to compound the problem in that I think MotoGP teams will say, well, hey, a midfield World Superbike guy, a midfield guy in our paddock has gone straight to your paddock and won the title. Um, yeah. Whereas I'm not sure where if Bautista goes there and struggles... I'm still not sure whether MotoGP will even in that case take World Superbike seriously. They'll just think that Bautista's having a bad season. Yeah, it's it's kind of a lose-lose for Worlds here because, as I said, MotoGP has a very arrogant attitude and they do not take World Superbike seriously. They just don't. If they did, Jonathan Ray would have half the paddock lining up for his signature right about now. Um, And they didn't. And this is a guy that was a top eight runner as a wild card when he filled in for Casey Stoner. Um, mm. Jonathan, it might be the number two pound pound rider on the planet, quite frankly. Um, and yet here we are. Worlds doesn't get the credit it deserves. They, they're about to bring in a national champion into the world superbike level and into a factory team. And nobody really batted an eye that Leon Haslam coming back. Kind of sad, actually, given how, how brilliant a season Leon Haslam's had domestically. Mm. But there you go. It's, it's the unfortunate nature of where we're at right now. Um, yeah, they're kind of damned if they do and damned if they don't on this one. It reminds me a lot of when Fernando Alonso went over to IndyCar for the 500, uh, you know, stuck it on fifth in qualifying, and then Lewis Hamilton jumped and said, you know, what, is, what does it say about the state of IndyCar if, if Alonso first time out was qualifying on row two? Let brackets. Let's not forget he basically stole Marco Andretti's setup for that oval. But still, it, it made the point that you know all the F1 guys are like, "Ha ha! Look how weaker IndyCar field is because Alonso walked in and kicked half their asses." Now, don't get me wrong. A lot of that is more down to just how brilliant a driver Fernando Alonso is, mind you. But that's the sort of attitudes that many defensive fans of motorsports series have, and the same could easily apply here. Alvaro is a brilliant rider. If he comes in next year and cakewalks the title, it's not going to make Walters look any better. This is a series that still is trying to, I think, to a degree, wash off some of the stench of people like Carlos Checa and Max Biaggi winning titles when they were past their best. Don't don't get me no disrespect to those guys for winning said titles, but... MotoGP arrogant fans are just going to say, well, Biaggi was 41 when he won his world title. He was way past his prime and he couldn't beat Valentino. Same with Carlos Checa, who was a good to great MotoGP rider, but, you know, didn't it didn't exactly enhance his legacy by winning a world superbike title. It's, it's that sort of mentality, which means Worlds is probably screwed no matter which way you look at it. Um, because... Yeah, like mo- until MotoGP take the World Superbikes more seriously in terms of employment options and in terms of respect towards its paddock, it's always going to turn its nose up at, at, at mm. whatever the series. It's like the uh, it's like being the middle child. It's uh, not healthy for anybody involved. 
Mm, absolutely, because it brings me back to a, a discussion that uh, you were having on Twitter, and I, I, I tweeted about this on Monday mm. uh, during my long travel back, and it was in discussion, uh, I was in relation to a discussion we're going to have in a moment about the last MotoGP spots for next year that have been filled um, on satellite Yamahas. Um, and uh, and you were replying to a tweet um, that said um, from uh, Sammy on Twitter, at uh, Taymia on Twitter, uh, apologies yep. if I've uh, mispronounced that. Uh, he says Butcher. he feels for Michael Vandermark, <laughs> and I thought Zarko had restored a bit of faith in older rookies. Kind of hope Dawn is stepping to save World SBK as a step on the ladder system. I mean, who wants about five of the top 30 riders in the world stuck out in the cold? Um, mm. uh, and you replied to that, totally here. You think it ultimately boils down to what Dawn wants World Superbikes to be. We all know that they've been gutted for talent. They'd love to, yeah, I'd love to see more crossovers between the two, but everyone's trying to find the next Mark Marquez. Um, and it's like, in many ways... In my view, and I don't know if you uh, feel the same way, that World Superbikes needs to stop, and I don't know what it does at the moment, it needs to stop considering itself a step on a ladder towards MotoGP mm. as much as it needs to consider itself the top rung on its own ladder. Yeah. I think, because I, I never really responded to that one, because you know YouTube responding, I was at work. But um, yeah, I, I I see where you're coming from, and I think that's probably the best thing they can do for the time being. Like, Which I think world... is where Supersport 300 and Supersport come in. Yes, I completely agree with that notion. Yeah, like, like Worlds is not going to stand out by basically being Dorna's little brother. That would be, I think, the killing blow for us taking World Superbike seriously as a series. If they said, yeah, we're going to be a feeder series to MotoGP, why would anybody watch Worlds on a casual level, knowing it's going to be another feeder series when MotoGP already has their own ladder system, which they will almost always go to first? Only a couple of freakish examples of top-tier biking talent have come through Worlds, like Cal Crutchlow, Danilo Petrucci, uh, etc. There's not very many other examples in recent years of guys coming through the other ladder. So, yeah, I think you're right. I think World needs to focus on the talent that's willing to come through its own feeder series. In this case, World Supersport 300 and World Supersport, which is having a bit of a renaissance year right now with guys like Clazelle, Caracazulo, Krimanaka, you know, uh, Mahias, all, all guys that are standing out in their own right in the series right now and is putting on a really entertaining season. Mm. Like, that's probably where they should be focusing rather than trying to say, oh, let's try and one-up MotoGP. They're never going to do that with Marta Marquez and Valentino Rossi and Jorge Lorenzo and Dovi around. They're never going to they're never going to surpass them for talent. It's impossible because they have the, the Dorna machine has its own ladder. Steve puts it quite right in the Discord. He goes, Worlds need to be the IndyCar to MotoGP's F1. And I'm inclined to agree with that because the people that respect IndyCar know that guys like Scott Dixon and Alex Rossi and Will Power in their own right are pound for pound some of the best racing drivers on the planet. And they don't need the validation of F1 for us to believe that. I can tell you right. Are we still still as guilty ourselves of this? I I think we are in a sense in in that we... We, whenever, whenever MotoGP riders are doing so well, we've, we've said it to, to Jonathan Ray, um, that when Jonathan Ray is dominating World Superbikes, the first thing we say in many many cases is, oh, if only he went to MotoGP and we'd see how he does there. When in, in many respects, in his mind, if nothing else, World Superbikes and dominating there, to him in many ways, that is the pinnacle. And we need to, I think, yeah. in some ways, get to a point where Superbikes in its own right the World SBK Championship is the pinnacle of that of that discipline, the pinnacle of that of that formula. Um, and in many ways, as soon as we talk about World, World Superbike Riders in terms of what could they do in MotoGP, in ourselves, we're talking that series down and treating it as the baby brother to, to MotoGP. 
Agreed. Um, like I said, they're never going to one-up MotoGP. It's not going to happen. It will take something absolutely meteoric for Worlds to ever get back to that level of, of, of respect against against GP motorcycle racing. They had maybe in the late 90s, early 2000s, when it was Bayless and Edwards and Harger, etc. Like Those days are dead. Those days are probably never coming back. Um, so... I think focusing on what makes their own series great and the talent that's willing to stick around with them is probably the better option in the long run. You have a ridiculous all-time great talent in Jonathan Ray. You have an excellent rival alongside him in Chaz Davis. You have your own young talent in Michael Vandermark as well. You have former GP riders now that are strong in their own right, you know, like Alvaro Bautista, like Eugene Laverty. These are no names. Like, you've got talent here. Like, you're better off probably focusing on that rather than trying to chase after MotoGP and take some of their shine away because it's not going to happen. Dorna is never going to let Worlds take some of MotoGP's shine away. It's never going to happen. So the best they can do right now is focus on building their own ladder. And if they can do that well enough, there's no reason why some guys might not jump over their side and come up that way. Because I think that's the future of the series as opposed to trying to one-up MotoGP, which is impossible in their current climate. Uh, and World Superbikes, I think, is it, you know, it may pre- it may be presented soon with an opportunity. This might be the first example of it in Bautista, in that with MotoGP's grid itself getting seemingly younger and younger, um, there are going to be more and more riders who perhaps um, will be presented with this opportunity. And rather than World Superbikes being seen as some sort of refugee centre for MotoGP riders that can't find a seat, mm. Um, actually, it should be seen as a viable alternative um, to MotoGP riders. Um, uh, Bautista being the first example of them, but you know Scott Redding um, may yet find himself. I mean, I think he's turned, already decided that World Superbikes isn't available to him based on a lack of competitive machinery, um, and he may go the BSB route. But um, you know, we're seeing riders lose MotoGP spots that I think we would all agree don't deserve to lose their spot. We've seen it with Loris Baz this year uh, move across mm. to the World Superbike Championship from MotoGP. Um, he's not exactly lit up World Superbikes this year, has he, on that BMW, but he turned up at MotoGP again last weekend on that KTM and was brilliant on it, um, which, yeah. again, which again shows the level. So maybe um, we're going to get to a point in the future with that sort of uh, pool of talent getting wider and wider and the you know available spots for them you know, sh- uh, you know know getting taken up earlier and earlier in a season, um, that they may have to look to World Superbikes in future and see that that's a viable alternative for them uh, as a career yep. option. Bautista has seen it that way, and he'll ride alongside Chaz Davis at Aruba Ducati next season on their brand new V4 Panigale, let's not forget, um, for 2019. Um, now, the situation that left Bautista faced with a move to World Superbikes as his likely career move um, came about based on the fact that the two uh, spots that were left to be filled that we knew of for next season uh, were then filled at Patronas Yamaha. This is the uh, new team uh, run largely by the Spain International Circuit. Uh, they'll be running satellite Yamahas next season. Uh, and their two riders are going to be Franco Morbidelli uh, and Fabio Quartararo. Um, Quartararo, of course, took his first Moto2 win earlier this season. Um, and before we discuss those two riders and what that team could do next season, Dre, um, we'll first of all pick up on a point that Alvaro Bautista made Um on Thursday in the pre-race press conference where his move to World Superbikes was announced. Um, Mm -hmm. And um, it was pretty clear to see what points he was making uh, with his, you know, 
avenues being blocked up uh, for next season in MotoGP. The first of them being that MotoGP is now in a sort of position where spots have been filled up earlier and earlier in the year now. It's not like you can get towards August, September and still have potential MotoGP spots available. They're getting filled up in sort of April and May now. Um, yep. Bautista said that you know he was having problems earlier in the season with his Ducati. And by the time he got himself um, up to speed with the Ducati that he was riding for this season, all of the premier spots in MotoGP were essentially tied up. Um, and that he was in no real position when he started, finally started showing himself to be very competitive. And because he had that brilliant ride um, at the Saxa earlier in this season, that was too late already by that point for him to actually you know attract a MotoGP team and convince a MotoGP team to sign him um, for this season. The other point he made, and I'll give you his direct quote um, regarding the state of MotoGPs to the season now. Uh, he says, I remember many years ago, you moved into the next category after winning or challenging for the championship in the lower category. Now, for managers, if a rider does one or two good races, you are ready for the higher category. For me, that is not the common step you have to do, but that is the situation. Now, it's pretty clear to read between those lines, Dre, and work out who he's referring to. He's referring to Patronas Yamaha and a certain Fabio Quartararo. Um, and, yeah, and, yeah. and none of that is potentially... Is particularly Fabio Quartararo's fault, but um, it's difficult to disagree with much of what Bautista said there, is it? No, um, there's no real getting around it. Like, like Bautista should have gotten that seat, in my opinion, and on, by any measure, he's a better option than Fabio Quartararo is right now. Quartararo had two great results in Moto2, and everybody got excited and signed him. Yamaha made it clear during this uh, Patronas um, press conference that they wanted a younger rider. But even then, there's better options available than Fabio Quattararo that are around right now, I'd argue. Like, even someone like maybe Alex Marquez, but as Lynn Jarvis revealed on yeah. Italian TV, he's, he's not signing a Marquez brother, ever, apparently. So uh, they've been blackballed. Um, so, yeah. Uh, how do you like them apples, Alex? But, uh, you know, it's, it's like, for example, why wouldn't you give um, Lorenzo Baldessari a call right now? if you wanted a younger rider, because I'm sure he would qualify for something like that. Um, but then again, I guess the question is how young is too young these days in, in bike racing? Um, I, I'd have thought Johan Zarco might have restored a little bit of faith in older rookies, but nope. Yeah. Um, and and, and to, to, to make a point, and I want to underline this point, because we've said this on, uh, I think we said this on last week's show, um, that none of us here are saying that Fabio Quartararo is not a much GP rider in the making. I think he absolutely is. I think he's got the yeah. talent to be there in the future. Um, but this feels to me like a hot shot. This seems to me like a flavor of the month signing um, yeah. from, from Mubastay Yamaha. Especially when Fabio Quartararo said in the press conference on Friday night when this was announced, he was asked, when were the first? When was the first contact made um, from this team regarding a MotoGP spot for next season? And you will be surprised, or not at all surprised to hear, that his answer was, after I won in Barcelona. Of course. That, that so it's just not proves like Patronas yeah. Yamaha were looking at him before then. Yeah, it, it just goes to show you that, that it was a hot shot shot. It was a hot shot signing. Fab, like, Fabio won a Grand Prix and all of a sudden he became Mr. Hot Shit. Um, and yeah, after that, I was like, oh, look, Fabio's finally found the upside we were all looking for. Let's go sign him. And it turns out by the rest of the season's results that that seemingly was more a flash in the pan. Whereas I think next year might be the year that Fabio puts it together on that speed up because, you know, he's capable of top 10s. The top 10 seems to be around his baseline right now, but that's not really good enough on paper 
to justify him being a MotoGP rider given recent trends of who got, who, who, who's getting signed. You need to be in the top five, ideally, to be thinking about being in MotoGP the following year, like a Thomas Luti, like Frankie Morbidelli, who won last year's title, Rins, Sam Lowe, Johan Zarco, even if he's siring was in the top six last year, and he was sort of a last-minute call-up, really, compared to all the others we've mentioned. So Fabio feels exactly like a a fad signing, a guy that gets hot at the right time, right at the right time, and then all of a sudden has got half the paddocks, you know, basically eyeing him up. Um, it's a bit like the Pokemon card trend before they get banned in, in primary school. It's, mm. uh, it's popular for a, a week, and then a week later he gets banned, and then they're on to the next fad. Oh, look, Beyblades. Um, so, you know, it's uh, that seems to be how it was. But um, I, I I, don't think Fabio is there yet. I've, I would have thought another year with a slightly thinner Moto2 field would have probably made a lot more sense. See where he's at compared to gatekeeper sort of figures. Um, you know, sort of like, you know, like uh, an Alex Marquez, for instance, or a Lorenzo Baldassari and see how he stacks up there. Yeah, that that's a great analogy that, that every listener is going to take from this show. Now, Fabio Quartararo is Beyblade. Um, yes, um, for, uh, for for twenty nineteen, and it's 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 a tricky one as well. If you're Fabio Dre, isn't it? Because um, you could argue, and I think we probably both argue that for his development long term as a rider, this is perhaps too early for him, and that he'd be best served with another year in Moto Two. But if you take examples from history, like say Danny Kent, circa twenty fifteen. Um, if you're Fabio Quartararo, you can't really blame him because who's to say that he's going to be at this level next year? In many respects, when a MotoGP ride is offered your way, take it. Yeah, well, why the hell wouldn't you take it? Like, seriously. Like, Back um, but yeah, like, as we've seen with many riders before that haven't done this, betting against yourself is often the best way of getting shit done. Jack Miller did it by jumping up two classes. Guys like Danny Kent, who had the same opportunity did not take that opportunity on. Dominique Agata could have been a MotoGP rider. He was off of the Pramac seat. And that seat would have been pretty darn valuable now um, down the road. And this is a guy that's, you know, only ever won one top flight Grand Prix, um, Dominique Agata in Moto2. So, you know, the guys who bet against themselves tend to do better in the long run. It's why Rabat and Zarco kind of stuck it out an extra year in Moto2, even though they won championships already, and actually got better seats for it by doing so. Um bet against yourself rather than you know taking the opportunities you got out of there like now fabio is just coming to moto gp next year with essentially nothing to lose a lot of people don't a lot of people don't think he's going to be anything worth a damn next season so if he ends up being half decent he's going to look like a freaking superstar so why not like why not give it a go and see where you're at so and if he does do well next know. year lynn jarvis and yamaha are going to be watching his progress very very closely and thinking of course is this the next rider to bank on for our factory team going down the road um mm-hmm. so uh, so we shall see uh quattararo confirmed then at patronus yamaha alongside franco morbidelli who has to be said Dre, he's, he's sometimes flown a little bit under the radar this year but um we we sometimes should be careful not to judge every rookie by the standards of a marquez or perhaps last year a zarco but quietly going about his job on a Honda, which is still a little difficult to ride when you're a rookie. Mobidelli's done a solid job this year. He really has. Um, again, that, that that Honda is not an easy bike to ride. It's universally difficult um, bike to ride. You're not going to get the full potential out of it, unlike Mark Marquez. 
it's a hard learning bike for a rookie to come into. And Frankie has not made very many mistakes and gone about his business and scored some good results all season long. Like a, like we expect out of a, a, a Moto2 champion who's joined a below average team in terms of opportunity and in terms of what bike they've got and what resources they've got available. It's going to be interesting to see how he turns out because it's looking like he's going to get a 2019 Yamaha right out of the box. Quite similar to what Maverick Vinales and Valentino Rossi are on right now. So Morbidelli's got a lot of faith going into him right from the right from the off and it's going to be interesting to see where he stacks up in comparison to the factory Yamahas and Johan Zarco on, the, on that KTM instead of his, instead of his Tech 3. So there's a, there's a lot to keep an eye on there where that's concerned. But uh, I'm excited to see what Fabio can do on a bike that might be a bit more user-friendly in the long run. Hmm. Yeah, Lynn Jarvis was kind of guarded, uh, and he needed two or three prods to actually give us the information that we were after on Friday in the press conference, where hmm. he was asked what kind of spec of bike the Patronus team will be on next year. Um, and he did sort of reference to the fact that they would have an A-spec and a B-spec at uh, the Patronus team, with the uh, a spec being much closer to the factory bikes and the B spec being much more of a sort of year old satellite bike. Mm. Um, and obviously, understandably, the A spec would go to Morbidelli, the B spec would go to Quattararo, um, who would obviously need to just essentially learn the ropes in order to GP before he's given a up to date factory spec bike. But you kind of feel, Dre, um, that Yamaha have kind of learned very harsh lessons in this last two or three years where they've got gradually less and less competitive in that they they have probably missed a trick where Repsol Honda with LCR and Crutchlow and Ducati with their Pramac team are gaining serious benefits from having their satellite teams on much more up-to-speed equipment and essentially aiding them with development. And Yamaha, I think, are now seeing the error of their ways. Yeah, having the entire team still built around Valentino Rossi, good and bad in its own ways. They blocked Johan Zarco from potentially um, helping out when that was concerned as well. And now... They can't use him anymore because Desmond and KTM. So Zarco's now effectively a dead asset. Um, yeah, Maverick has not worked out. They are they're obviously working hard to work around that, and they haven't really got this, uh, you know, this 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 resource pool of young riders that other factories like KTM have to help develop their bikes in the long run. For now, they've essentially That's seen their why... satellite team as a threat and a competitor rather than a team that can actually assist them. Exactly. So you know, they've they've now got to build the foundation to help long run hey you know two very young but talented riders in front of them to possibly help them out in the long run doing that so yeah as it stands right now it's 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 certainly an upgrade and it's certainly going to an investment is going to pay off in the long run because they have something that you know they're, they're catching up now to the rest of the field so yeah, it's, it's, it's very much necessary. And hey, if Frankie Morbidelli turns out, all right, that's a hell of a talent to have in your back pocket. It is. Uh, the Spain International Circuit operation that's going to be running this Petronas Yamaha team will be having teams in all three classes now, or all four if you include Moto E, um, for next year. Um, so they've they've got a a great operation up and running there, which is more good news for motorcycle racing in Malaysia. And one of the sports ministers from the Malaysian government was at Silverstone last Friday as part of this press conference. You know, they are... You know, it's such a big country for motorcycle racing. You know, it's probably mm. the, one of the most popular sports, if not the most popular sport in Malaysia now, uh, MotoGP. Um, so for a team to be based in that country now is huge news over there. Um, they're also going to be running a Moto2 and Moto3 team, as I mentioned. Kyrill Idan Pawi will be their rider in Moto2. Um, he's had a couple of years now in that class with the uh, Team Asia, Honda Team Asia, Idamitsu team. Uh, last year, he was his teammate to Takaki Nakagami, and this year, of course, he's their only rider uh, now that Nakagami's up in MotoGP. Uh, now, in Moto3, 
Um, they have made a change to their rider lineup from this season. It's the team that currently runs this year as the Patrona Sprinter team. Um, Adam Norodin is out. We don't yet know where he'll go next year. Um, but Yumu Sasaki, the former Rebel Rookies champion and uh, teammate on the Asia Talent Cup champion, if I can get my words out, he stays on. Mm. His new teammate, John McPhee, um, which um, is a... It's another plum pucker ride that John McPhee has landed on his feet in. Um, hmm. And, I mean, if he wasn't in the last chance saloon two, three years ago, Moto 3 surely this is it. <sighs> can I just say, can I have John McPhee's agent, please? Because, um, like, clearly John is looking after him very well indeed if he keeps getting him these top-tier Moto 3 seats. And, is it, like, arguably, Dre, is his agent Dorna? Because Dorna seems to be so desperate to keep British involvement and a young British rider in the lightweight class that perhaps there as they have a bigger role to play in this than anyone. Let's not forget, it was them that helped facilitate the British talent team for him. Yeah, like, because they, they literally have no one else leveled. Dick ladders, or they're in other ladders. You know, like Super Sport 300 right now, or the, the dominant World Superbike Championship, where they dominate their championship. So, yeah, they haven't really got anyone else at the moment. So, yeah, when you, when you weigh all of that up, it's like... I, I guess they're desperate for McPhee to stay up there because they need the, as much British hype as possible. Um, because, well, you know, they need to keep, they need to plug their own talent cup. You know, Tom Buffamos isn't really there yet, unfortunately. Um, and yeah, they need to they need to keep McPhee relevant. So they've now given him another top tier Moto free ride, the Patronus team with R&D development, with a lot of money coming their way, with a lot of publicity and attention. It's a big deal for them. So, yeah, they're going to absolutely, you know, rinse this and, you know, use McPhee to the best of their ability. So, yeah, like, the way it's going right now, I'm not surprised at all that, you know, that McPhee got it. But uh, at the same time, it's uh, it's kind of in Dorna's best interest to keep him relevant. So, uh, yeah, they're going to absolutely mock it. So, uh, yeah, McPhee with another opportunity. Let's see how he does with this one. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it probably is one of the final chances, if not the final chance, if nothing else, because he's rapidly approaching the minimum age limit, uh, the maximum age limit, should I say, for Moto3. Uh, so give it another mm -hmm. couple of years, and he will, by regulation and by the rules, not be allowed to take part in that, that class anymore. Um, mm -hmm. So it's, uh, it's a big year coming up soon for John McPhee, if he wants to have any kind of future in the Grand Prix paddock, because that future will not, for much longer, lie in Moto3. Um, jumping back to Moto2 for a second before we wrap this show up, there's been one of the uh, rider signings that's been made for next year. Forward Racing spotting the great opportunity on a slow news day on Sunday to actually get their announcement out during the delays to the racing uh, yeah. on Sunday. They announced Romano Fanati um, for their uh, MB Augusta supported uh, Forward Racing Moto2 team next season with the new Triumph engine. Um, Fanati, who's Probably not got the points to show for it, but he's certainly shown flashes of um, genuine performance in Moto2 this mm. season. Um, so um, he's going to be riding, if nothing else, one of the best liveried bikes on the grid next year. MB Augusta, oh, yes. Augusta if uh, anyone who follows World Superbikes and Supersport knows, MB Augusta do not build ugly motorcycles. No, um, they do not. They're all absolutely gorgeous. So, uh, so Romano Fanati will be on their MB Augusta in Moto2 uh, next year. Um I've actually told you one big lie, the final piece of news that we're going to bring. I've told you one big lie from last weekend at Silverstone. Because there was actually one race last weekend. So congratulations to the one guy that won a motorcycle race at Silverstone last weekend. And that was Rory Skinner. 
um, who won hey. the one race in the British Talent Cup to happen last weekend. That was on the Saturday. Uh, Saturday sort of late evening in the sunny conditions on the drying track. Rory Skinner taking the victory uh, in the one British Talent Cup race to take place. Their second race, much like everything else on Sunday, was cancelled. Um, that brings us to the end then uh, of this week's edition uh, of Bike Life Film Spot 101. Notice how we still managed to squeeze in an hour and three quarters on a race that never happened. Um, how? Such how is, did we do that? Such is life. Uh, yeah, it's almost like we're really good at filling time and padding these shows out. Uh, but thanks to all of you for uh, for sticking with us and listening to this week's show as we uh, debated a very sad weekend for uh, for all concerned mm. at Silverstone. Um, but before we go, um, the places you can find us, facebook.com forward slash motorsport101. On Twitter, we are at motorsport underscore 101. Uh, YouTube, it's youtube.com forward slash motorsport101. Our website is motorsport101.com. Uh, and if you want to back us financially and earn yourself early access to both of our weekly shows, um, it's patreon.com forward slash motorspot101. A reminder that if you back us at the $5 level, uh, you get early access to both of our weekly podcasts. If you back us at the $10 level, you can listen in live uh, on Patreon. Um, and next week, uh, episode 158 uh, of Motorspot 101 will come to you. Um, as Dre mentioned, uh, IndyCar is back again for its second round in as many weekends. And uh, we're getting into crunch time, Dre, in this IndyCar season. In fact, Formula One's uh, getting into crunch time too. It's getting into uh, a crunch weekend for Ferrari as they look to uh, taste home victory at Monza. Yeah, it will be their first home win since 2010 if they could pull that one off. No, they've not won there since Fernando Alonso's win at in 2010. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's a critical round for Ferrari. We mentioned it on, on last week's episode 157 that, uh, yeah, the way it's going... Um, this is where the, the, the season starts to lean back towards Ferrari's favor. You know, we just had a power track in Belgium. Monza is another one with their, you know, heavily rumored engine upgrades, engine being a bit more powerful right now. Monza's another big round for them. They've not won their home race in eight years. Um, big chance for Sebastian Vettel there to, to further close in on the championship lead down to 17 points after Belgium. So big one there. They've got Singapore as well in two weeks' time around where Sebastian is very strong around. And Mercedes, um, and Mercedes are historically shit. Yes. Um, you know, the shorter wheelbase of the Ferrari really helping them out there and even more power. So Singapore should, should be even more of a lock than usual for Ferrari. So this is a big couple of rounds for him. Can Sebastian reel the gap in any further? It's 17 points with eight rounds to go. Um, so, yeah, big one at Monza this weekend. We'll be talking about the Italian Grand Prix um, on that one. And as mentioned, IndyCar, IndyCar's penultimate round of the season. First time they're racing in Portland for over a decade. Not a lot of guys in the field there raced on the original layout. Um, but uh, a big one. Their championship is getting down to the to getting down to the grand finale stages now. It's looking more like a two-horse race now between Scott Dixon, who holds a 26-point lead now over Alex Rossi, who is just slowly reeling him in over these last few rounds. It's looking like a two-horse race. Double points powers. finale looming as well. Yeah, a double point finale uh, looming at Sonoma. The last time ever going to go to Sonoma by the looks of it as well. Um, that final round um, is is going to be a thing. Um, there in two weeks' time at Sonoma. But yes, the penultimate race in the championship um, at Portland. It's looking like it's a two-horse race. Maybe Will Power and Joseph Newgarden can sneak in back into contention if they, but they probably have to win both of the last two races to realistically have a shot at it. 
But we'll be talking all about the Italian Grand Prix and the Grand Prix of Portland in a doubleheader next week on Motorsport 101. Yeah, do tune in for that. And uh, we'll be back, of course, next week for the second consecutive week. We'll be back for an episode of Bike Live with no races to talk about. Um, but um, uh, as this week has proved, we'll no doubt do a job of, uh, of filling time. We may even bring back one of our most favorite panelists and, uh, and guests uh, for next week mm-hmm. as well. Uh, more on that. Uh, when we get it um but that brings us to the end of uh, this week's episode of bike live as i mentioned at the end of a sad weekend for us gp a sad weekend for the british grand prix and a sad weekend for silverstone uh, we hope for better next weekend at Mizano, and we hope for better from silverstone in the weeks to come uh from a very sad and very frustrated and a very annoyed bike live myself Lewis Sudbury and andre harrison we'll see you next week bye for now